Hello and welcome to Unsupervised Thinking, a podcast on neuroscience, artificial intelligence, and science more broadly. We are a group of computational neuroscientists. I'm Grace. I'm Connor. And I'm Josh. And for this episode, we are talking about the biology of gender. And this uh, is stemming from an episode that we did a few months ago, episode 16, which was a joint episode with the people from the Always Already podcast. And that's a critical theory podcast. And so for that, we were talking about the science of gender and studying gender and science's role in society and a whole bunch of of topics. Um, And we read this book called Brainstorm by Rebecca Jordan Young that uh, was kind of something like an outsider's uh, analysis of the science of how gender is studied. And they kind of disagreed with the conclusions that some people in the field have made. Um, but that, that conversation, that episode, spanned a lot of different things and, and didn't really get into the details of the science in, in those studies. So we just wanted to loop back around to this topic and go through some of the ways that gender is studied um, in humans and in some other animals. So I guess, I mean, in some sense, yeah, it's like our own curiosity led us to return to this topic because we felt like there was more for us to, to read about and discuss Yeah, and so to do that, we read a paper called The Biology of Human Psychosexual Differentiation by Lewis Gorin from 2006. And uh, this paper, I think, was really well-written and interesting and kind of uh, doesn't fall prey to some of the issues that some papers in this field do. Um, So none of us actively work in gender studies or the science of gender or anything like that, but... I was looking through the literature to find a, a good source, and it was kind of difficult to find something great on this. And this guy is a doctor from the Netherlands who actually works with uh, transgender people. He's worked with, according to Wikipedia, over 2,000 transgender people. Um, and so his approach is one that comes with maybe more understanding of the human level or the subjective experience of these issues than kind of a purely scientific standpoint or maybe like a a scientific standpoint that would have come from previous eras. Uh, So I thought this was a really nice read for this topic. Do you want to introduce the second paper as well? Sure. The other one that we read, which is a paper that was cited by the first one, is Hormonal Influences on Sexually Differentiated Behavior in Non-Human Primates by Kim Wallen. Uh, And so this is a more purely scientific one that goes over a lot of studies related to uh, behavior in macaque monkeys. And I guess maybe to motivate the connection, I mean, obviously the the second one was cited by the first one, as you said, but there's a a sense in which, and we'll talk about some of the details, but in the, the first review, there's a review of many findings in the literature on gender uh, and sexuality and biology. And one of the sort of conclusions is that a lot of the results are relatively weak, with the exception of there being potentially very clear and dramatic effects around uh, androgen exposure early in life or early in development. So androgens Uh, are just like the general class of um, 
things like testosterone, like more masculine hormones. I mean, obviously all these terms come with conclusions baked into them. Implied, yeah. yeah. So androgen like means male. Yeah. Like, but it, it generally refers the, the male to male generating hormones, yeah. basically. It refers to testosterone and dihydrotestosterone and this class of things. And so one of one of the classes of findings that seems most ro- robust under scrutiny is uh, something about let's say we'll we'll get into the technical distinctions more but like masculinization as a consequence of androgens early in life or early in development and this macaque study uh, does you know kind of says some interesting thing that says some interesting things not all of which were I mean we're not making claims that this all carries over to humans of course but just it, it says some interesting things about primate development with respect to androgens um, so it kind of goes into more detail on that topic. So I guess we can start with the first review and then make our way to the the second paper later. Yeah, and so obviously um, there's a lot of reasons why these kinds of questions about gender are actually very difficult to study in humans. I mean, I think people, the the naive question um, that most people have, which is kind of what these things are are interested in as well, is to what extent is gendered behavior uh, something that is baked in from the start or something that is primarily influenced by society and expectations that you're given to behave a certain way. So you would want to be able to kind of raise humans in isolation and see if they still show uh, differences along lines of, you know, males behave one way more often and females behave a different way. Uh, but obviously you can't do that kind of thing. And so it's uh, easier to approach with animals, but then there's complications about maybe what is gender in animals because you can't actually ask a macaque if they identify as female or if they identify as male. Um, and also we can get into some of the issues with studying this with even uh, lower mammals. So you know a lot of rodents or yeah, something. a lot of work is done in rodents in neuroscience and in biology. And sometimes, there's no strong reason to believe that those things aren't broadly applicable to humans, but uh, in certain cases there are clear differences that have been identified, and so they make extrapolation from from rodents more difficult. But yeah, so let's start, I guess, with... um, I kind of liked the way that this uh, Lewis Gorin started the paper, which was more talking about, you know, kind of his experience in a way interacting with people who are trans or who have gender gender identity issues um, and he gave some kind of interesting facts about uh, those topics and it, it gave a kind of broader more maybe humanistic uh, intro to the topic than, than these papers normally have. So I guess one thing is that uh, the terms that are used, sex refers usually to biological sex so that's usually identified by chromosomes or genitalia at birth. Um, and then gender is the, the way someone identifies, so female or male gender or uh, variants of that. Um, and then in this paper, they say gender role refers to how gender is displayed. So you have kind of your internal gender identity, whatever that is, and then there are ways that you choose to display that, and those are your gender roles. Though some people use gender role to mean kind of the expectations that society has for people of different genders, but that can be called gender norms. So that we'll say that's what gender norms are, and gender roles are how you 
express your gender identity. Um, so yeah, so he talks about some things, and one of the things that he brings up is this idea of early versus late uh, transsexualism uh, or transgenderism. He uses transsexualism. Um, and the idea that there are some people who, from a very young age, were displaying behavior that was typical of the other gender. So men who have an interest in female clothing from a young age or something like that. Um, and then there's other people who it seems like, you know, maybe in their 40s, they all of a sudden develop uh, an interest in, in perhaps identifying as the opposite gender. And so that these potentially are two different types of, of transgenderism. And he also says that in this later version, there's an idea that the male to female uh, trans people potentially find it kind of erotically interesting to think of themselves as women. And that's a component to their desire to transition. He also says that these later transitions aren't uh, as success successful as people who have these properties early on because... Um, Where success is defined as like personal satisfaction yeah. after transition. Yeah. If they make a transition, how likely are they to be satisfied? The people who do so later in life might be... Uh, less satisfied. But I wanted to bring this up because there's this, um, the phrase for this idea that a man is kind of attracted to the idea of himself as a woman is called autogynophilia. And I just was like, I hadn't heard of this idea. And so I was Googling it. And you kind of immediately see it's like a hot topic. It's a, it's a politically charged idea where there are certain researchers, such as the one that is cited in this article, that kind of claim this to be a large component for why these late uh, transitioners have a desire to transition, and kind of it being causal in a way that that... Uh, yeah, and I think there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I mean, even among researchers, it seems like there's a lot of sort of moral judgment that goes on, especially around this topic, where like, this is you know, related to something that I think by, by like, let's say more conservative elements in society is viewed as like a, a perversion uh, rather than a disorder. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, this, this is like, this is like a charged topic where yeah. that is the, the language of the, this, this, this debate. To be clear, right? So he says in this paper that most transsexuals do not recognize themselves in the typology in this kind of bipartite. Yeah. The early typology. versus late. Right. So, yeah. so this is something that some other expert has. Proposed. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there was, there's a apparently there's some conflict, and I, I, we shouldn't get into this because it's not something that we we know well. But there's apparently some conflict between this uh, academic and an academic at Northwestern over how salient these taxonomy are for trans uh, transsexual. Yeah. So the uh, guy who the guy who is a proponent of the early versus late dichotomy and the autogynophilia thing is called Blanchard. Um, There's a few. I mean, it's not. It's well, the, not just, the one that's yeah. cited here and is kind of targeted. Um, so, but no, I, I mean, I wanted to bring this up exactly for that reason that these things are very debated, and this is a science that interacts heavily with the real world, and so. Uh, I, so when I looked at, so there's this um, blog called Whipping Girl. There's also a book by the same title um, that talks a, a lot about trans issues. And um, the post on this autogynophilia thing there was basically pointing out that in the studies that claim that this is, you know, a component to these people who uh, transition late, 
the the people who didn't report autogynephilia were kind of uh, excused away as just not being honest in their reporting. That was the claim. Mm. And so obviously that's not appropriate science. You can't just take the people who don't fall in line with your results and say that they're lying. Um, <laughs> so, but it wasn't the case that no one uh, reported that. It was just the claim that, you know, anyone who transi transitions late feels this, and also that's a motivating factor for their transition that just seemed not supported. But sure. when it gets translated into when this these studies, so like, yeah, that's a bad study if, if, if they really just excuse the people who didn't line up with what they wanted to say. But the problem is then, you know, a headline gets printed that like trans people are in love with themselves or something like, you know, that's more degrading than even what the bad science is saying. Um, then there's a, obviously a pushback to say, no, that's not our experience. That's not representative of our population. But in a weird way, that's kind of saying that this autogynephilia is a bad thing. It seems like both parties are saying, you know, it's bad, and so trans people are bad, or it's bad, and we as trans people don't support it. And it gets very worked up. The whole field is worked up, and any kind of small statements are put into this uh, context where they can have huge impacts because some people kind of want to malign others. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is now a dated joke, but there was the the Seinfeld bit uh, from one of his episodes where it's like people thought he was gay, and he's like that he was saying he's not gay, not that there's anything wrong with that. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> as, as, like he wanted he wanted to disclaim that he, he wasn't criticizing gay people, but of course, like the joke was that by like even being kind of like put off by the fact that someone thought he was someone gay. might think he was gay, he was of course saying that like there seems like there's kind of something wrong with that. So he had to like say that there wasn't, but even saying that doesn't really uh, fix the problem, fix, fix the sense that you're conveying yeah. by making the first assertion. And so that, you know, touches on how the science of gender is obviously like very complicated because if you do it sloppily, uh, there are real consequences and there'll be real pushback. Um, but also it, it shows that it's hard because if it is the case that you try to do a, a study on autogynephilia in an atmosphere where maybe like Christian people have been publicly saying how terrible that is or, you know, some it's it's in the atmosphere that this is a bad thing and that the trans population doesn't want everyone to think that that's how they feel, then even if you as a trans person did feel that way, you might say that you didn't because you don't want to be contributing to the idea that uh, that trans people feel that way. And so there's these, all these feedback loops when you're looking at human behavior and you know taking surveys of humans' opinions that uh, can make all of this very complicated. So before, I think we should get into some of the scientific details, but there's one other thing I want to say, because I think that this topic, though it sounds like we've started in a direction where we're talking about transsexualism, uh, is not really related to... I mean, it's related to these things, but it's also... There's an interesting question lurking in there for me about, I would say, like, the sort of mainstream heterosexual population, um, which, which I think is, was an interesting one and, and puzzling one, which is like, as human beings, we find ourselves, and I, I think it's, it's something that it's easy to elide over, right? As, as human beings who maybe do not have non-conforming sexual identities or orientations, we find ourselves with some identity and with some orientation and um it's you know possible that that is entirely socially determined but like 
obviously there are gender divisions, distinctions between, you know, the, the genders and distinctions between, you know, the sort of sexual anatomy and sexual behavior. Um, so it seems likely, I think, that a, a, a sort of a decent amount of sort of sexual identity and sexual behavior are determined in part biologically. And when you think about that, just for like, you know, for an average heterosexual person, it implies that who you find attractive is like somehow determined by like perceptual features. To me, this at least seems to follow. And maybe there's a flaw in this reasoning. I mean, this is like sort of basic. I mean, we kind of like I think colloquially people accept this, but like who you find attractive is determined by sort of perceptual features and somewhere like probably to some extent genetically uh, or, 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 or developmentally, your brain is sort of popping in response to uh, to certain fairly innate things. I mean, like we accept this with animals, like certain birds find big feathers on a bird of the opposite gender attractive. And it's and just you like, can, like trick them with like and you can trick them, yeah. So like if you make like, like yeah, like an animal that looks like it. I mean, and, or or how like in certain kinds of primates, you see that there are you know sort of large posteriors that get like inflamed when the animal is sexually receptive, or something like this. And it's like, but, so I, just to be clear, is this actually related to to the study of gender? Or are you conflating sexuality with gender? Well, I mean, so the fir- the fir- this review talks both about the, the sort of biology of sexual orientation and sexual identity. And so here I'm mostly speaking about, yeah, orientation and sexual behavior. But I mean, in, in, the, in, the, in the studies we're talking about, both sexual behavior and sexual identity are, are, are discussed. So sexual I'm not, identity I, or gender identity? Well, okay. So what do all these things mean? Like, I, I, I just, yeah. Well, that's the point of. I mean, that would that would ideally be the point of good science on this topic is to to pick apart what these different things are. I mean, sexual well, identity. I don't know if I I have a, a sense of what that means. If you just meant identifying as male or female, then I would probably call that gender identity. What do we want to know? Like, if we were yeah. well, so, so that, this, what would we want? Like, I would. Yeah. So this know. is what I'm. This is what I'm trying to get at. I mean, one of the things that I want to know. Yeah. Right is in heterosexual people. What's going on developmentally or genetically, like genetically or developmentally, that gives rise to an adult brain which finds only roughly fifty percent of the population a, a, like sexually appealing? Do you mean individual. like a heterosexual person today in America? No, no, I, and so like obviously there's huge social cues. Like, yeah, yeah. so but you know, like a prior question is like, I want to know. I mean, clearly these things interact. Well, okay, so clearly so these things annoyingly complicated. I find okay, this well let's say let's like make well, it a concrete know. example. Yeah, so I mean, what I'm what I'm what I'm basically I, I mean I I don't want like clearly there are assumptions baked into the question that I'm asking. Yeah, but it feels like a reasonable question if you accept that like. Like, I think I'm heterosexual mostly. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I mean, so if you accept that there's, like, biological diversity in orientation and that that, like, clusters around heterosexuality, which is to say that, like, a decent, like, potentially large majority of the population is predominantly heterosexual. And you mean, like, will would, would be in, like, 
all human societies or has so far been yeah, all human yeah societies. that uh, so like i'm i'm saying and obviously these things interact and there are like social factors that amplify uh certain things that people find attractive or whatever and, and I, but i'm just saying like what if anything i mean i'm willing to phrase this open mindedly yeah. what if anything goes on in a heterosexual person's brain that is let's say biologically determined and if it turns out like maybe it turns out that the smell of the opposite gender is sufficient to find like you have hard coded in you as a male for example uh that like there's a chemical set of like a set of smells that are you know predominantly excreted by females that like you find like sufficiently appealing somehow subconsciously that that's like what determines sexual orientation. That's like that's a that's a testable hypothesis. I'm not claiming that it's true, right? And it, in some animals, I guess there's limited evidence that like smell is a you know strongly determining factor into mate preference or something like that. But like so, and in some birds, it's clearly like some visual cues related to like you know plumage and ornamentation or something like this. Uh, so like in many animal species, we kind of have a sense that there are perceptual features that determine it, and in humans. Presumably, it's more subtle and and plastic and and like socially informed. So I'm not trying to make it like exclusively biological, but I guess you know the end of this 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 rant is like to what extent is there something in humans, however subtle, that's like largely biologically determined that is the is the cue to determine. So you want to know like the neuroscience of that process? Why? Yeah, let's let's say the neuroscience of that in a broad sense. To me, I, I like think the, the thing that's way before that, I think, and that's important. Like, I don't like talking about human nature, to be honest, because I, I just find it usually comes up in contexts that are just weird. It's kind of why do we want to talk about it? Like, we already have a sense of how we should be behaving towards each other. So, so like, maybe it's maybe it maybe it's kind of like it's, it can be interesting and in a sort of like some type of magically pure oh, I'm just interested in understanding stuff. And I guess people are more interesting than a lot of other things because I don't know why that is. That's the, I mean, I, I, mean, I find... Do you want to understand, like, a ball rolling down a hill or do you want to understand, like, sexual I mean, orientation? physicists <laughs> claim to prefer understanding the ball rolling down a hill, but, you know, maybe they don't... Maybe they're lying. But um, to me, it's kind of like... The, the, the way these questions... I'm not trying to make some, like, really annoyingly contemporary sounding statement um but like there is always some historical context to how and which questions about these kinds of things get posed and they're questions about people people's lives and they're and this happens to be a question uh, this set of questions around gender and sexuality and stuff happen to be questions that you know in the past have kind of been linked to various types of suffering right? like oppression yeah oppression, like people use the results of this quote-unquote science to yeah, oppress yeah. others exactly yeah, or yeah, even yeah. just like not even not the science just even like the topic right um and then the scientific questions kind of arise in these in these contexts and like whatever i mean i don't know what that means but like you know it's just that so yeah you're wary i don't know i mean i think though i, I you know there's like a just, bit of repression that like if you're not willing to explore and understand where no. your own desires and interests like come from, it feels a little repressed to me. I mean, I don't mean that in like a 
I see. Um, no, no, I'm totally willing to explore on my own. Well, I mean, I do that all the time. <laughs> Constantly <laughs> explore. Um, but like, I don't know. It's just like, yeah, so it's just kind of, well, one question to me is kind of like, what are the boundaries? Like, what, are, are there constraints? Because when, when, when we say like biologically determined, I think that can only mean something quite weak. And I think it's, I'm, I'm always, I always find it dangerous to use the words because it has so many connotations to people who aren't like thinking in a subtle way you know um so i don't know maybe yeah, it seems yeah. Over, like when, when my, pedantic, but. so like when when you're saying when my question was like what biologically determining factors are there when when a, when someone like me says biologically determining i mean not like fully determining i mean like yeah. determining exactly. refers to like a contributing factor yeah and the contributing not, factor could be like very weak or or it sure, could be like yeah. the strength of it as a contributing factor could be like highly dependent on many other variables context blah, yeah, blah, yeah. Blah. okay All fine like so that. i think that yeah that's that's a fair like criticism of the language that i'm using i think and and, and presumably that language is used very inconsistently across science yeah yeah i think yeah. so and i think that probably accounts for some of the in some fields of science when they say biologically determining they're probably using it like you know, it's not like, like there, big... there, there have been scientists who have yeah, yeah, in, in the recent past, and there probably still are scientists who think who, who who have to me seemed like crazy ideas about like biological determinism, like really strong statements about things. Yeah, yeah. About, so like, I should I don't know. Yeah, you know, I should be using somehow weaker language though. That's like kind of a conventional term, even when used in a weak. Yes, it's so. just like I really want to like reject certain things like very strongly, like at the outset to differentiate myself from certain kinds of arsehole. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> you want to be the right kind of asshole. <laughs> I suppose, yeah. The pedantic <laughs> kind. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, so yeah, in, in headlines, you'll see things like nature versus nurture when any reasonable scientist knows that both things contribute. And so it is hard to speak succinctly about these topics without seeming like you're overstating claims. Or oversimplifying, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but, but like, given all of these caveats, I don't know, Grace, what is, what is your motivation in this topic? And then we can dive in. More. I do have an interest in the extent to which, um, well, I mean, one, and this we won't actually get into that much, like, the extent to which there are strong differences in genders and what... Uh, behaviors are kind of robustly have gender differences versus which ones happened to in like the Western societies that they were studied in originally and that kind of thing. So I do have an interest in, in the nature versus nurture question um, about gendered behaviors a bit. But okay, like, to be clear, right, to, to me, tell me if I'm wrong, the only thing that that can mean and make and kind of be coherent is like what are we know that human beings exhibit massive variability we know that human societies exhibit massive cultural variability and that that cultural variability can include massive variability in terms of the roles played in that society by the people who have like the large fraction of roughly half of the people who have penises and the large fraction roughly a half of the people who have like vaginas right and then what there are other people too right but like um the roles played by those two sets of people males and females can vary okay and to me the question that you just posed is yeah, i mean be, you could say like in all possible human societies what are the boundaries on the variability um well not boundaries but what are the what are the tendencies in the distribution well, okay, you, you could, of ha, you could characterize the distributions right yeah for example that's, like that's maybe the description are, maybe yeah. there are yeah so the, maybe there are like 
you know, you can quantify some set of behaviors and you can say like there can be, there's going to, we know there's going to be variability, whatever, amongst all the individuals, but maybe there are like average differences and maybe there are, and then also maybe the, to be used slightly mathematical language, maybe the support of the distributions is like, you know, different for like, there could be things that like, but I mean, I guess that seems pretty unlikely, but there can be things that humans can't do and there could possibly be things that like, women never do or something or I mean that's probably very unlikely but yeah um, okay so this is what we mean right kind of characterized so, distributions or something that's yeah. one way of fr- so but so Connor you've now criticized both of our answers without giving your own which is fine but like is there is there a, a, a subspace of questions on this topic that you actually find interesting or is it just I don't want to think about this question because it's politically charged I mean is that no, kind it's not of that I don't want to think about it no I, I mean there is a thing where it's like I, you know how important do I think certain topics are? Um, but whatever fuck does importance mean? There, it's just totally personal, kind of. Um, yeah, no, I, I find it somewhat interesting um, to wonder about. So there's salient things like there are there's sexes. There are usually two sexes. That's very saliently clear. That seems to be the case, right? <laughs> um, and then I guess, yeah, are there, but there are differences in behavior. I mean, like, we know this already, so it's not like, I don't know, it's no, just like, what is observe, the interesting no, no, no. thing, really? We can observe differences in these distributions for a wide range of behaviors. And the thing that I'm interested in is how would those distributions change if society could somehow be removed? But like, Which it can't. I mean, of course, it's, it's like, it's interacting. So the question is, in some sense... Like, I mean, to try to rephrase and, and bolster the legitimacy of that question, right? It's like, not necessarily with removing society, but like, kind of, what is there that would be, regardless of society, you can think about it as like, any society puts pressure on different behaviors across genders, maybe reinforces some behaviors as dimorphic. Like, how much... Are, are, are certain behaviors characterized by like, so deep an innateness that different... Like, eat... eat like, even in very different societies, it would require like enormous pressure to change certain behaviors in, for example, males versus females. So like, I don't want to, I don't want to read too much into this, but like as a plausible example, given the papers that we read in the, uh, in the, in the macaque, uh, in the rhesus monkey study, uh, they speak about infant interaction as one measure of, uh, sexual dimorphism basically like that female young female macaques enjoy interacting with infant macaques more than young male macaques enjoy interacting with them and so i won't like i'll just repeat what they said without like i'm not fact checking this deeply but their statement is that in these monkeys uh you know there's like a five to one ratio of like females spend five times as much time interacting with infants as males do and they claim, by reference, that this holds in humans. And I haven't looked at that reference, but so that I'm just so that would be like one example where, if it's true hypothetically that across societies, females pr- like tend, and this is true for primates, and presumably less true, mod, you know, I don't know for for humans, maybe it's equivalently true for humans. Females want to spend more time interacting with infants. That would be like interesting if true. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not like, 
buying too much into it per se. I mean, it yeah. seems robust as a finding in animals. I guess it's interesting. I mean, it's just like... So why is it interesting? Humans, Maybe it's human, not like... You, humans aren't animals, right? So it's kind of like... Well, that's... They're not those... They are. They're, they're, yeah. they're, not like, they're very different to other animals. Sure. We don't... I think it's like wrong to think of them as too or not wrong. I mean, they are animals. Obviously, I think they're fucking animals. I think I'm totally an animal. Like in this, I'm very annoyingly irrational. <laughs> You're almost bipolar about this topic. It seems. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no. In a way, like, but, but it's just that they. Uh, okay, so whatever. It's like okay, you know. Let's say, let's say it's a general thing where females want to play with babies more or something. I think that's just such a simple... Like, I guess this is the point, maybe, is that we're always talking about these distributional things. And when you make these, like, one-off, one-line statements, usually they just characterize the mean. And I think maybe there's something about, like, categorical thinking or something. When people hear these... You can... You, as the sentence that says, like... If you use a sentence, if you have a sentence that's that's got a greater than or less than in it, like... You know, like males, like females, yeah, or, fe- or females tend to play with infants more than males, basically. Yeah, that could underlie an enormous difference, or it could underlie a tiny difference. It doesn't tell you anything about the variability. It doesn't tell you anything about the variability, like in a given population, or between populations, or across time. Blah blah blah. Um, so, like, it, to me, it's like unless you have much more detail, the statement kind of doesn't justify anything, really. Like, in terms of, like... Well, it's not... There's a difference between justify... No, no, I know, but justification comes into it almost, like, inevitably. Because there will always be... Unless you live in a world where there's, like, total kind of lack of major power imbalances between people of different kinds, of any systematic sort, right? So, like, for example, males and females. They're tif- you know, historically in lots of societies have been major power imbalances on average between males and females. So unless you live in a world that doesn't have any of that kind of, it's just always this thing where. Um, you, you, okay, so sh- I'm not saying you shouldn't say it. It's, yeah. but I do think okay, there's but, a certain kind of responsibility that comes along with. Yeah, but okay, we're getting into this at a, at a, at a very deep level around like every statement we're, we're making on this topic, and I think that that's that's a valuable digression, which is essentially what what, what you're saying is. That like, why do we feel like we should be making any of these statements? And so I'd like to like at least attempt to motivate why this is like not as prob- problematic. I mean, it is problematic for all of the reasons that you've elaborated. But there's a sense in which, to me, it's it's almost a kind of people want to know maybe purely for voyeuristic reasons, but also maybe to feel psychologically like they have a sense of what other people are like. They want to know things about the distributions of things and people. Like, why are surveys and polls interesting to people? It's because they want to have a sense like, well, what do other people feel, yeah. right? And I, 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 I think these are charged topics, and, so, and they, they feel very fundamental. Like, you know, you, you interact with people, and you want you just want to have a sense like, what are people like? I, I think there's a there's a naive and playful way. I mean, I realize that this can can very quickly lead to sort of oppressive tendencies when imposed as norms. But like, and and, and so I'm not trying like you can be sort of I could be like cheery in this conversation and say like, oh, let's just know about the differences. But then like in the next conversation, it'd be like, oh, you know. Now that we know those differences, let's make 
you know, political yeah, policies right. that uh, <laughs> reflect <laughs> the fact that there are those differences. I mean, and I, I'm not, I'm not, but but ignoring that for a moment, I mean, I think that there are maybe, maybe maybe I'm wrong, like maybe the right answer if we want to keep things fair and equal for all individuals is to just not know these things because if we know them, but I mean, so, but I, I don't really believe that. I mean, yeah, I think yeah, that we okay. can have this knowledge and use it responsibly, but also I think that there is just a curiosity to this and it's like almost like voyeurism, right? We just kind of want to know a bit about people generally because it's interesting totally to us. I agree with that, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I feel about it the same way that I felt when I was young and initially getting into things like psychology and neuroscience. There's a sense of, like, we do things and it's not clear why. And, like, you know, I think most people who take intro to psychology are just like, oh, cool, like, I'm understanding myself and I'm understanding the people I care about and that kind of thing. Like, it's yeah. just, yeah, it's just general understanding. But I do agree that it would be nice if it could be done in a bubble that isolates it from the external world at least until things are settled a bit because if you let things out too early they go into this highly reactive environment where they get amplified and distorted and it it feels like it's dangerous to even say anything then i think that's that's right i i, I don't yeah so to, to be clear right my concern is not actually it's of course i, I think all things are of le- like legitimate things to study i mean unless it requires harming people to study them or something I'm, like but like roughly right I'm, I'm sort of all for like general curiosity and attempts at understanding I'm trying to make I think my criticisms are more actually to do with how to do good science around topics that are politically and socially charged I think the fact of a topic having a kind of a uh, an important social history to it which is probably true of all scientific topics can often be ta- should I suspect often be taken into account in order to do better science yeah i mean so i i agree i think so i think let's let's move to some of the scientific details i mean we've had a lot of interesting i think uh sort of meta discourse around this topic i can't help but always i can't help but talk about these things in like a meta way i like that our whole point of this episode which was to actually get to the science has been sidetracked it's i guess it's impossible yeah no but and, and i think that like that's a nice like I don't know. I don't know if it's an allegory or a parable or if it's just... uh, But, like, we can't even get to the science on this because it's too politically loaded. Like, even just the three of us talking about it, it's as though we've been stymied. Uh, Well, let's just say that every sentence from now on is implicitly prefaced with, this might not be right, and we don't want it to affect things too much, but... (laughs) Let me make one more quick statement, okay? Because you said this thing of, like, you go to a psych class and you want to know, like, how, what are we like, right? Mm -hmm. And, of course, like, everyone can relate to that, can can relate to that feeling of, like, wanting to understand what human beings are like. And so I just think there should be, like, modesty and kind of historical awareness about our own efforts to understand ourselves. Yeah, yeah, fine. That's that's all. That's reasonable. Here, here. (laughs) Okay. So. Oh, and caution when you're telling the youth, right, how people are. Oh, God, right? yeah. If you don't want some old fucking fucker being like, oh, you know, like, the women have to be, like, you know, whatever. Like, that's the old I read a paper that macaques love, macaque females love infants, so therefore my wife's not going to work. Exactly. Yeah, and, and like, and of course, and when, like, temporary versions of that, too. And if, like, a, a white male professor over 50 is telling that to his female undergraduates, there's, like, of course, a social context to that, right? I mean, yeah, I get yeah, it. So from, for the rest of this conversation, let's remove social context and 
try to just really? speak about the science that we're aware of. <laughs> okay, so so the the review paper. I mean, it does start off with, as I said, this guy talking about kind of. Um, some of the, the information he's gleaned by working with transgender people. And so I'm, I'm glad that we brought up all the caveats and confusions. And yeah, this isn't about transgender people. It just happens to be the case that um, some of the disorders that are used to, to get at um, how sex and gender are related, um, you know, they involve people who were assigned one thing at birth and chose to change later. And so it, it becomes relevant to, to have that perspective. So yeah, so maybe we can start just to set up an explanation for some of the the natural experiments, quote unquote, that he talks about in the review. We can explain the very briefly um, kind of sexual differentiation uh, in in utero. I guess I can do that. But <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Grace. Right. So um, so yeah. So females generally have two X chromosomes and. Uh, males have X and Y. And so in development, initially, uh, a, a uh, embryo is considered, what was the word? It has like bipotential. It can be either male or female for the first, I want to say two weeks. I might be wrong. Um, but so it has these kind of structures that will become genitalia and other sexual organs. Um, but they're the same in males and females to start with. And then the sex-determining region of the Y chromosome, which is called SRY, it, it's part of the chromosome, so it leads to the production of proteins, and uh, that the, those proteins cause the testes to develop in males. And from then on out, the testes are producing hormones that interact with other tissues to masculinize the embryo. So. Basically, the as I said, the Y chromosome produces a protein that creates the testes. Then the testes start to produce uh, something called M or AMH, which basically turns this embryo that had uh, two different. It had the potential to be either gender or either sex. It kind of shuts down the female side of things, and then testosterone is re uh, released by the testes and dihydrotestosterone. Those seem to be kind of the three major things that contribute to different um, parts of the masculinizing process. So testosterone leads to more of the internal sexual organ development for men, like the vas deferens, and dihydrotestosterone uh, relates more to the external genitalia. And so basically what this means is that in the absence of this part of the Y chromosome, uh, the, the embryo would continue on to female typical development. And it's the presence of this part of the Y chromosome that uh, shuts down all the female active stuff and ramps up all the, the male stuff. And so there's this notion, I, th I think this is interesting because, I mean, one thing that we had briefly spoken about is there's like some sense maybe that like some of the language in medicine is biased like against females or something like this. And while that's true in, in certain sort of social settings, they're, they're like here the language is that like female development is like the default path and that like males deviate from that by, you know, releasing something. And I mean, it's not my inclination to necessarily think about, uh, I feel like I'm only thinking about this in the context of like, what's the social context of this? Because I've heard 
that the language is often like biased against females and this one feels like fairly neutral or like if anything slightly biased against males but i'm not really inclined to say that because it feels like sure. it's just kind of and I, uh, yeah i mean yeah also you could say that default is female or you can you can phrase it however you want but it's just the the facts are that this part of the y chromosome acts on the developing embryo in a certain way um but the thing that i heard related to this is something like uh, literalist Christians didn't like it because in Adam and Eve, like Eve comes from the rib of, a of Adam, so like the male should be the default or so something like that. So there you I go. I mean, there is this context where like apparently some people who Care, are chauvinistic yeah. or patriarchal, you know, think that the male should be the default and the female should be derivative. Yeah, but I just wanted to say so. So this makes uh, two points, which is kind of that the. You can call it the default path is female, and you need to masculinize. Um, and secondly, that the actual importance of the Y chromosome seems, you know, that that gets this whole thing going. But then mostly what's talked about in terms of impacting uh, differences along sex lines is the hormones that are produced. And so... The fact that every cell in your body has a sex, quote-unquote, that it's either XX or XY, um, potentially isn't as relevant as it might seem like it would be. Obviously, there are circumstances where people have looked into, you know, how do uh, these differences affect different kinds of cells in the body, um, but a lot of the, the major effects that we associate with sex differences seem to come uh, from the hormones, not from the genes directly. The first order of things are, you know, the type, the way the body is, and the type of genitals are. Yeah. So yeah, so that kind of sets up um, how things work, so that we can understand the types of disorders that have basically allowed for some splitting of maybe genitalia and uh, hormone environment to kind of be able to separate some things, because basically. It's hard to study differences or the relationship between chromosomes and sex and gender uh, in humans because generally, you know, as if you have uh, this sex determined determining region of the Y chromosome, then you're going to be producing certain hormones, and that's going to lead to certain genitalia, and that's going to influence how you are, uh, the sex and gender that you're assigned, and how you're treated throughout life. And so all these things are so related that you can't tease them apart naturally, and we can't do artificial experiments to tease them apart in humans. So that's why people have turned to certain disorders that have arisen naturally in the environment uh, to be able to tease these things apart. The tendency in these disorders is that either certain hormones that are supposed to be produced or certain, certain molecules that are supposed to be produced at certain times aren't produced, or that, for example, receptors that are supposed to like receive a signal from one of these sources, one of these molecular sources, is malfunctioning or mutated. And so, like... It, often in these dis disorders, a certain stage of sort of the standard developmental timeline is blocked. And that has, like, obviously a cascade of effects subsequent to that point in the trajectory. 
um, but like it starts somewhere um, and is possibly somewhat localized. Yeah. I mean, obviously, these it's hard to know exactly what's going on in these disorders, but um, yeah, so for example, a general class is androgen insensitivity, meaning that the, the tissues aren't responsive to the presence of things like testosterone. Uh, I think in this case, they're still responsive to um, the thing I said, AMH, which leads to um, the more... in. Uh, some of the internal development because they have they don't have properly functioning female internal organs these are xy people so they they would be uh male but because of this disorder they don't have properly functioning um female internal organs but they have basically a vagina instead of a penis and so when they're born they are frequently um assigned female gender based on the genitalia, but then they're actually, uh, they're, they're XY, they're genetically male. But the indication for these people was that they tend to be very comfortable, like with a, you know, sort of female identity and or a sexual, the, the sort of standard heterosexual orientation in that setting. Yeah. So they're usually assigned female, raised female, and they seem to frequently be uh, attracted to men, so they would be kind of heterosexual female, and they uh, don't change genders um, at high rates compared to some of these other disorders. So I think the number was around 10% of them will change genders. Do you guys think this kind of thing of, like, why do we call these disorders matters? Like, isn't that, is that, like, bullshit? Yeah, I, mean, I understand what you're saying. I think when I say disorder, I just mean rare thing that changes the course that's not what disorder really connotes yeah i know yeah. <laughs> like, do you think that's important i mean like i mean so i i think like every part of this language is like socially problematizable but i think that this is not unique to this yeah i'm not saying it's unique just, right it's it's a standard it's, medical thing which is like anyone yeah. who is deviant you know yeah, in medicine in, in medicine is is class as being disorder yeah i mean you could say the same so you could ask the same question but it was like mental. like and i think it's it's true of things that are sort of obviously life impairing like diabetic people right like people with juvenile it feels very reasonable to call it disorder i mean these people have and this is something that is mechanistically similar in that it's like a malfunction genetically that causes some deviation in a developmental trajectory I think and, though, the, the key component is, does it cause uh, a difficulty in functioning of some kind? Because, you know, we all have different genes that lead to differences. But in these cases, I mean, they have obvious reproductive issues. I mean, if you have a vagina and not a uterus. So, for example, if you were an XY person who your entire life thought you were a, uh, like, healthy female, you might get married, be sexually active as a female, have... A heterosexual orientation, and then realize you can't have a baby. You can't have kids, and that annoys you. Yeah, you and I so think like there are signs that... prior to that, but yes. but yeah, I'm, okay. Like, yeah, I was, I was exaggerating, <laughs> but I mean, the standard thing to say, which I think is not like total bullshit, but what's a problem to someone in their life depends on like the world they live in, right? So yeah. if like if we live in the future where we grow all the babies in test tubes, then it won't matter. Then it yeah. won't be a disorder. Or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these conditions—that's probably a good word. 
I'm not trying to like, <laughs> police your language. I'm just talking. <laughs> you are trying to police the. I'm not you're trying to police the I'm whole conversation. I hate people who police language. I'm definitely not trying to do that. I, I, I just okay. No, it's an interesting thing. Though. Yes, I think it was a, an interesting thing to bring up as well. All right, you're gonna delete that part. I guess. <laughs> okay, continue. Um. Yeah. So something there's kind of a, a fine point here, but I'm gonna make it one because I think it came up as relevant um, in, in the book we read for the, the last episode, Brainstorm. And so that is that these people with uh, androgen insensitivity, their body is still producing androgens, so they're, the body is producing testosterone, but that testosterone doesn't really have anywhere to go because the tissues aren't receptive to it. And so they end up with excess uh, testosterone which um, the body can actually turn into estrogen. And so they also have high levels of estrogen. And in um, rodents, high levels of estrogen can actually be defeminizing. And so that led to some confusion and in interpretation of, of uh, these conditions where they're androgen insensitive and so have high testosterone and high estrogen. Um, but it turns out that that aspect of estrogen doesn't hold up in primates. So lots of estrogen doesn't have uh, an effect of making anything more male. That was something that was only true in, in lower mammals and rodents. And so that's an example of where this, oh, yeah. this doesn't hold uh, the, the use of, of lower mammals. So it seems like in these gender-related things, you should be looking at studies that look at if not humans, non-human primates, ideally. Yeah, and, gender well, but, well, I think it's even more complicated than that. I mean, we talk about we talk about it as though primates are a better example. I, I mean, as one side point worth bringing up is that, like, even in the case of primates, it's like not the case that everything translates to humans. For example, baboons have estrous swellings and are like sexually receptive, especially at certain times when they have this swelling. Obviously, humans have human females have cycles for sexual reproduction, but it isn't the case that their receptivity is is as strongly modulated as it is in these primates. So yeah, so there always needs to be caution, and as in any kind of animal research that is meant to be informative of humans, it's good to have kind of a, a feedback loop where you figure some stuff out on. Lower mammals, maybe, but then check in with higher ones, and if it's not lining up, then you know that the lower mammal studies might not be so relevant. So another one that I think is is interesting is called something with a lot of words: 17 beta hydrosteroid dehydrogenase deficiency. And what this is is um, again, it's uh, someone who's XY, and they. In the early differentiation stages, like I was talking about where the testes produce hormones that guide the development of other tissues, um, they have certain cells that cannot produce testosterone. So this leads to a um, female-like external genitalia, so they're usually raised as female, but then the um, different cells later on are able to produce testosterone. So this is a, a more isolated condition where the the prenatal environment seems to be different but then later the the hormonal environment later on becomes more typical of xy uh, and so in these people when they're assigned and raised female 
about 50% of them change genders to male later in life, uh, post-puberty, I believe. So this is kind of related to this idea of uh, organizing versus activating. So it's the, there's a sense that the prenatal hormonal environment organizes the brain in a certain way, such that later hormonal exposures, like the kind that happen in puberty, will activate it um, to produce gendered behaviors. And so this is showing, at least the way that I think you're supposed to interpret this, is that if the brain, uh, the prenatal environment is such that um, it's in a more feminine environment and the person is raised in, as female, 50% of those people will stay female even when a more male environment happens later, um, whereas 50% will change. Although the complication with all of these is that they didn't make it clear if these people are receiving hormone therapy, which you think they might be if it's known that you know, they're, they're XY but uh, being raised as female. So that's a complication, obviously a large one. Okay, so I mean, kind of, there are there are other points made in this review that I think are interesting. For example, there's sort of a brief uh, dismissal of some of the science related, for example, birth order and sexual orientation, which is like, you know, like a I would say like a popular kind of conventional thing. But it, I mean, basically, the claim is it's not very strong science. They kind of dismiss the the birth order thing with sexuality they also talk about certain areas of the brain that were thought mm. to be sexually dimorphic but it the way they describe it it seems like a lot of those studies fail to reproduce yeah yeah so and that's so that was that was also suggest... actually a very interesting point right so i'd even heard about in a neuroscience class as an undergrad some of the hypothalamic nuclei of a certain brain region that are uh discrepant between men and women and there's some i think interest in like finding brain regions where homosexual men have similar properties to female, like female, mm-hmm. you know, brains. And it's usually size and neuron number that are being looked at, which are pretty crude measurements. So it's like, oh, there's this region in the hypothalamus that's like large in heterosexual men and like smaller in women and homosexual men or something like that. And like, I, you know, th- th- some of that science is like, I mean, maybe it's true, but a lot of it seems a little bit irksome, and a lot of it is, like, not done with, like, a clear sense of what the purpose of those distinct... It's just kind of, like, stated as though they're finding, like, signatures, and it's therefore unbiased. But actually, the lack of understanding about what those regions do often makes me feel, like, less clear that it's anything other than kind of a sort of phrenology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's like, people are, like, trying to grasp, and a lot of this work is old, and so, like, especially when reading through these kind of this, this, this these kind of literature, I find that it's like awkward because you're you're seeing like there was some people in the there were some people in the seventies or something who did like a study, and often that's the last time someone's checked that. Yeah, it was really weird this literature. Yeah, like the the citations so it's like, when they come from and everything. There's this hypothalamic nuclei that's bigger according to some study in 1977. That hasn't been re- replicated. Mm-hmm. I'm making up the data. Or the on that. one time that it was replicated, it didn't. Exactly. Replicate. Yeah. Like so, like someone tried to do it late again in the '90s, and they found that it didn't seem to be true. Uh, so, like, I mean, some, you know, some of this science just seems kind of suspect. There is the one region that they talked about here, and maybe this is just because this is more recent and hasn't been shown to not replicate yet. But <laughs> the human bed nuclear nucleus of the Shria terminalis. Um, 
is larger in males, and this is one that doesn't actually show a relationship with sexuality. So before they were kind of looking for these ones that are, you know, homosexual men look more like women, and this one doesn't have that. Regardless of sexual orientation, it seems to correlate with uh, gender identity um, because female to male trans uh, gender people had male type. Well, there was only one person that they looked in that, but male to female, they had more people, and they have uh, female typical. Uh, the size of this area and the number of neurons. And in animals, it's supposed to be related to maternal behavior. So mm -hmm. this one has a little bit of a, a mechanism potentially related to it and isn't about sexual orientation but is about gender identity. But again, probably needs time to fail to replicate. Well, no, I mean, I, I mean, it's clear that there will be, like, I mean, obviously I think we expect that there will be some of these things that are real. It's just, like, until, like, a, a good, like, sort of, thorough story is developed about them it, it feels like we should be careful that's all yeah of course um there's a guy do you guys know who bruno latour is he's like mm -hmm. a he's like a famous sociologist of science and he's like i think he's famously like critical of science or something yeah I, although i'm heard. reading a book of his now and it doesn't seem that critical actually um, which I always I think it's funny I well but you're like deeply cynical um, right so like if you were oh yeah you think I think science is also <laughs> so, so I just like totally agree with Bruno <laughs> <laughs> you're just casually reading this with the same uh, you know like, oh, malaise okay, as all of the as all of the sort of humanity <laughs> scholars feel towards science you know? but it's actually interesting because he's a bit like I don't yeah, whatever he's one of these critical people and um, he he actually wrote an essay a few years ago, which was really interesting, where he was just like, basically, and he writes in a quite casual, like a very haughty, but somewhat casual style. It's really interesting. It's funny. Like, but anyway, this essay was kind of saying like, you know, like, have you noticed the way a lot of these like critical ideas that like I, I myself have been part of developing over the last decades have kind of become like fucked kind of. He basically was saying like, yeah, this whole enterprise seems to be a bit of a dead end and um, we're kind of like only hurting things and like our ideas are being used by really right-wing people and it's kind of disturbing to me and he offers he kind of basically makes the very like nice point which is just like he was always kind of intending to like study science with the with the mind to like making it work better you know like and it's devolved making, exclusive into criticism or something like that. Or so, yeah, or like, you, you know, just, just kind of, yeah, I don't know. It was interesting because, like, I don't know, I think that kind of thing all the time when I read these kind of things. Like, why don't, like, let's more. It's hard. Yeah, it's <laughs> Science hard. is hard. Not that science is just hard, but, like, I think the, I like all that critical work. I think it's really interesting. And thinking about how science um, works and stuff, I, I, you know, I don't like what the attitude that sometimes exists that, like, scientists, science just goes on as it does and like you know we can think about how it works and we can try to change how it works and so on but it was just interesting to hear him one of this person who's considered super critical to be like I was trying to help and I think that it's not working <laughs> <laughs> that's funny anyway. you should send me that art essay I'd read it I could put the link online yeah, yeah. but like also send uh, to me because I don't look at our website <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to talk about the the macaque macaque paper yeah that sounds good case. okay so what it is is that um if you inject basically the mothers as they're carrying female children you give them testosterone some of that will get passed uh on to the child and so you can measure the effects of applying uh 
testosterone to the the female fetus and or embryo depending on the stage and see what happens and so they did this for different levels of testosterone and for different periods um, of the pregnancy to investigate and basically depending on when you do it you might actually um, create male genitalia in in the female um, or it the genitalia won't be affected but um, they can still look at differences in behavior so what did they find Essentially, like if we summarize the paper, which itself surveyed a lot of a lot of interesting work, essentially there was like an early phase and a late phase where if androgens were presented in the early phase, uh, the an anatomical changes followed. So like basically the, the genitalia was, you know, masculinized. And in the later phase the genitalia were kind of set and they changed, but like not very much. So they were like only like slightly changeable in the later phase, more like size and things like this a little bit. Um, But the behavior of the animal changed. Whereas early phase, but no late phase androgen exposure uh, resulted in no behavior like or limited behavioral changes let's, let's approximately no behavioral changes uh but uh, if i'm being slightly extreme like very limited behavioral behavioral changes but a lot of this anatomical change so the one thing that was like kind of core and actually quite interesting about this is essentially that this dissociated some of the behavioral and anatomical findings i mean of course it's more complicated in humans where like if you have some non-standard anatomy it may affect the way you behave due to sort of psychological reasons and the way you fit into society. But like in this context, there's at least something which is, I think, interesting in this context that like you could have anatomical uh, sort of masculinization, but not masculinization of behavior or, or vice versa. So there's a, there's a clear dissociability between those things in, in this animal. Mm-hmm. And what are the masculine behaviors? Um, so yeah, so they did observe these um, macaques to get a sense of, of what kind of behaviors are associated with different genders. And so one thing was vocalizations. These animals naturally vocalize and call to each other, and um, they described the female vocal- vocalizations as more like cooing sounds, and if they were separated from the mother, the female vocalizations would last longer. This kind of like back and forth between the child and the mother uh, when they're separated would last longer for the females. And there were some other effects of of the vocalizing. Uh, There was also the type of play. So the the males had more high energy uh, play and more mounting behavior than the females. And as we said before, the females showed more of an interest in spending time with infants and spending time with adult females. And they also looked at um, the extent to which mothers treated male and female offspring differently, and they suggested that there weren't, uh, weren't strong differences there, maybe some small things related to grooming, or uh, they said that if the male child was separated from the mother and calling uh, with these vocalizations, that the male would be retrieved faster, but I think they were attributing that to the, the difference in the sound that was made, that the, the male call was kind of more effective at getting the mother's attention, not necessarily maybe that the, the female 
was doing that because it was a male child. Although that would mean that the yeah. males would always be picked up quicker. So it's a For which, from their point of view, is a difference, right? Yeah, yeah. And the, don't they also play with males' genitals more or something like this? Yeah, they said that they were. In, it was inspecting or grooming uh, the male genitalia. The mothers would expect inspect or groom the male genitalia more than the female. You know, this whole thing of, like, how do we, ch- how do people choose what to look for, right? Like, I thought it was funny that they uh, mentioned that um, they, uh, mothers will inspect the genitalia of males who have larger penises for longer. Did you notice that? Well, that's because there's more <laughs> to inspect. I see. It's like, no, I don't know why. Why do they think of measuring? Like, that means someone, that, that means that someone sat down, like, it got out a tape measure. Yeah, I mean, I was, measured. I was thinking about this too, because this came up also in the context of there were males that were exposed to androgen blockers, uh, in the late stage. So their anatomy was somewhat fixed, but they said that, like, their penises were smaller when exposed to androgen blockers in the later stage of development. So, first of all, worth noting that that was a salient thing that both you and I noticed. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so like when we're reading this paper, we, we decide to, to, to bring up these topics. But Yeah, this is the, yeah, exactly. this is the one thing I've mentioned. This is the only thing you've you thought about. You just read the whole paper and it was, they were playing with the yeah. larger penises. Uh, no, but, exactly. but uh, no, it was, it was, I was thinking about the re- research methodology of this and how it would be sort of interesting and weird to be one of these researchers who's like tasked Probably like some undergrad or, or grad student who's like tasked with measuring the size of a population of monkeys' penises under different circumstances. Yeah. You do what you have to do for science. Indeed. Right. Um, but yeah, this one also uh, kind of tried to do the, the ideal experiment that I would like about changing the society that people, the macaques were raised in. Um, they said that there were different groups of, of raising that... Uh, there were they tried raising them just among their peers, so it was kind of like was that uh, Lord of the Flies, <laughs> like there's oh, kids yeah. stuck on an island, <laughs> and then there was um, a, a rearing situation that included the pairs of mothers and infants, and so I think the the conclusion from that was mostly that the behavioral differences in genders remained even in those different rearing situations, so that's again supportive of the idea that they have to do with androgen uh, exposure, potentially. At least not so much to do with the things that we talked about, about the mothers potentially treating the different genders differently. Wasn't there some finding about people not, people, what are they called, monkeys, not having sex when they were... Oh yeah, the the, the um, macaques that were raised only with their peers, so Lord of the Flies, they did not develop uh, normal, the males didn't develop normal sexual behavior i don't know if they elaborated on that exactly but it's if they're raised in mother infant pairs they develop normal adult it's kind sexual of something behavior. like oedipal going on you know yeah, well i mean the mom is spending around. a lot of time inspecting yeah exactly you need your mother around like fiddling with your larger than average penis so that you can become a you know i think it might be time to wrap up oh, okay fine <laughs> I'm glad that we did actually uh, get into some of the science this time. Yeah, yeah no, that was that was an interesting conversation. Yeah, it does seem fun, I guess, to study sexual stuff. <laughs> and with that, that that should be that should be how we wrap. <laughs> Thank you, Connor, for right. the summary of uh, our, our our feelings on this topic. Yeah, no problem.
Till next time. Hey, if you're still listening to this, you must really like us. So how about you go to iTunes or Stitcher and rate the podcast? Give us some feedback. You can also go to our website, unsupervisedthinkingpodcast.blogspot.com. You can comment on different episodes, or you could give us ideas for new topics you want to hear about. We would love to hear from you. Thanks.